Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you gave your apostles grace truly to believe and to preach your word. Grant that we might love what they believed and preach what they taught through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So churches, churches can be known for all sorts of different things. They, they can be known because they're beautiful. They can be known because they're historic. They can be known because they're faithful. I give thanks for St. Philip's Church because not only is it known because it's beautiful, and not only is it known because it's historic, it's known because it's faithful, and it proclaims the gospel, and it teaches people to follow Jesus. And so I want to say thank you to the clergy, especially you, Father Miller, for your leading this, this parish. It's um, such an important church as a church for Charleston, for the Diocese of South Carolina, for the country. Um, and y'all's faithfulness matters to the whole church. And then I have to take just a personal moment. Um, My favorite hymn in the whole wide world is Hail Thee Festival Day. Thank you. (laughs) I didn't get to sing Hail Thee Festival Day last week, and I felt like, oh, Easter with no Hail Thee Festival Day. We start processing, and I couldn't believe it. So... I don't know if you've blessed everybody, but you blessed me this morning. Thank you so much. I love, love, love that hymn. Now we'll start the sermon. So, if you read through the pages of the New Testament, a kind of sad reality emerges pretty quickly, pretty readily from the pages of the New Testament, the Gospels all the way through the book of Revelation. A a, a sad reality emerges, and that sad reality is this, that the church of Jesus Christ has experienced trouble and hardship from the earliest days. We would like to look back at some place, particularly when we as the church are experiencing difficulty, we like to look back and think that there was a time when that wasn't the case, when the church just enjoyed being the church and everybody around the church loved having the church there. And if you read the New Testament, you discover that that's just not true. It has never been the case. By the end of John's life, who wrote the gospel that we read this morning, by the end of his life, which is somewhere around 100 AD, some 65 years after Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to the Father, So a period of time that is just barely more than my lifetime. The church was already in trouble. So so John, when he wrote his gospel, John, when he wrote his three epistles, John, when he received the revelation that he was told by the angel to write down and send it and share it with the churches, his epistles... His revelation, even his gospel, deal directly with a church dealing with things like moral confusion and spiritual laxity and heretical teaching. And all of those came from within the church. 
They were a problem of the church itself, but as John writes his gospel, his epistles, the revelation, they're also dealing with oppression and persecution from without. A mere 60 years after Jesus' earthly ministry, already the church is plagued by problems and challenges and difficulties. And before that period of time, even while Jesus was still with his disciples, and and I want to offer you that Jesus and his disciples together, as they traveled around Galilee, and as Jesus taught them and taught the crowds, what we see in that small group moving around the Galilee and other parts of Israel is the nascent church. You have in that apostolic band the seed of what would become the church throughout the world. Even then, while Jesus was with his disciples, the church already was in trouble, both from within and from without. Think of, at the time of Jesus' death, Judas's betrayal. Betrayal of our Lord from within the apostolic band, from within that very first tiny church community. Peter's denial of his Lord. Even earlier than that, at the very earliest days of Jesus' ministry, Mark records the story in chapter 1, the other um, three of, two of the other gospel writers recorded as well. Jesus, with his tiny apostolic band, this nascent church, climbed into a boat one evening and set out on the Sea of Galilee. And a storm came up, we're told, a storm that was so fierce that even those disciples who had spent their lives, had made their living on the Sea of Galilee, they were experienced sailors and fishermen, even they, the gospel writers told us, they were terrified. There was something about this storm which was more than just a normal storm that they had experienced on the Sea of Galilee. And we know that something greater is going on than just a storm by the way that Jesus speaks to the storm and handles the problem. Jesus is uh, on the boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and he speaks to the storm in the very same way that in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus encountered a man who was possessed by a demon who tried to interfere with Jesus' teaching and doing his ministry, Jesus looked at that demon-possessed man and said, Be quiet and depart from him. That's the way Jesus spoke to the demons when he cast them out. And so he's roused from the back of the boat, And he looks at the storm and he says, peace, be quiet. And then he says, be still, winds and waves, agents of your demonic master, go away. So even then, Satan has his sights trained on the church to try to wipe it out even before it could begin. And so as we encounter that little church in the gospel lesson which we read this morning, we see that it, too, was not doing very well. Where it should have been pushing out into the world. These are men and some women who have already encountered the risen Christ. 
They have gone to the tomb and they have seen that he was risen. They have heard, look at the various gospel stories, words from Jesus already. This word has been recounted to them and yet we're told, both on the first day of the week and then eight days later, they're locked in an upper room, cowering in fear because they were afraid to push out into the world. We find them holed up, doors bolted shut. They were supposed to. Everything Jesus had taught them had prepared them to go out into the world, to lay out a welcome mat, to be wide open to receive the the hurting and broken people who needed to hear the gospel, and yet here here they are, terrified, huddled together, cowering in fear, hoping that nobody will find out where they are. Even at this point, we see the church in a bad light, scared, disheartened, defensive. This is a church that has nothing. It has no plan, no promise, no program, no property, no parking lot, nothing. They just are there. And so as we look at a church with nothing on that second Sunday after the resurrection, the gospel focuses our attention on one particular disciple, and that is Thomas. And Thomas really doesn't believe. Thomas had heard from the others by this point, in the week between Jesus appearing to them when he wasn't there, and this time when they're there huddled together, but he is there, he's heard from them that they know that it was the Lord, that they saw him with their own eyes. But Thomas was a twin, and he knew that what people thought they saw wasn't always what they saw. Probably people had seen his brother, his twin, and assumed that it was him, or seen him and assumed that it was his brother. He knew that your eyes couldn't always be trusted. And so as his fellow apostles told him that they had seen the Lord, he had said, no, 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 unless I see, in fact, unless I touch with my own hands, I will never believe. I know how easily tricked we people are. And so Thomas made clear both his doubt, but also his requirement to overcome his doubt. He said, unless I see for myself and touch the wound, He says this, I will never believe. Now, two incidents from the Gospels, both from the Gospel of John, two incidents involving Thomas give us um, some sort of an insight into Thomas's character. The first one that I want to look at is when Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem, and word comes to them that their friend, Jesus' friend Lazarus, who lives in Bethany, has died Jesus says to his disciples, let's go, and let's take care of Lazarus. And and, and the disciples are are dumbfounded, both because they've now received word that he's dead, but also um, because they know that if Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is facing serious trouble. And so they say, well, let's, let's don't go there. But Thomas... Thomas, who is doubting right now, says to his fellow disciples, yes, let's go with him, that we might 
die with him. If Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and die, then Thomas is ready to go with him. So one of the things that we learn about Thomas is that he is in fact, no matter what this particular story may look like, he's bold. He's brave. He is faithful and true. The second moment with Thomas um, that I want to think with you about comes from the upper room discourse. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem now. The disciples have finally come to understand that Jesus is in fact going to die. That's what he came to Jerusalem for. And Jesus is trying to reassure them and their troubled hearts. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself so that where I am, there you can be also. And then he adds, and you know the place already. You know the place where I'm going. And I don't know what the, the moment in that room felt like. Um, you know, you've been in situations where, you know, somebody asks you so, sort of a plain question, you don't really know it, or they say, you know, did you ever see this movie or read this book? Um, and you go, yes, and then, or, uh, and, and you didn't really. Uh, so, you know, maybe that Peter and the other guys are going like, oh yeah, sure, we know the way. But Thomas goes, no, I don't know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? So Thomas is honest. He's straightforward. He's bold and he's faithful. He's honest and he's straightforward. And thank goodness that Thomas stepped in and said, no, we don't know, because what we get in Jesus' answer is one of the best-known, most profound things that Jesus said in the Gospels. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. On this occasion, then, we read about this morning, it is loyal, prove it to me, faithful Thomas, to whom Jesus turns his attention. And in that room, that second event where Jesus appears to his disciples, Jesus looks at Thomas and says, okay, Thomas, here I am. It is really me. Look at me. And go ahead. Touch. Quit doubting. Believe. And it's at that moment that Thomas confesses the truth on which the church of Jesus Christ has stood from that point forward. At that moment, Thomas makes the confession that is all that is necessary for the church to be propelled out into the world to take the gospel which will heal the brokenhearted and gird up those who are fearful, and bring salvation to those who are lost, sight to the blind, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That proclamation, that belief is what changes everything for the disciples. 
it takes them from locked in the upper room and it propels them ultimately out into a scary, oppressive world. And what we learn is that the church that has and knows that confession, that proclamation, that Jesus is not just one of many potential spiritual guru guides that we could follow if we want, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God sent into the world to pay the ultimate penalty for sin, to provide freedom and release. When we know that, that, the, that Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, is the true confession, well, the church that has that confession has everything that it needs to impact the world, to change the world. That tiny, terrified, problem-riddled church changed the world. Several years ago, a historian who grew up as a Christian, but who gave away, rejected, and became one of those sort of ardent, passionate, atheist objectors to the faith, but he's a good historian, and he wrote a book called the victory of Christianity. And he makes the point in there, everybody believes that Christianity eventually took over the Roman Empire because Constantine the emperor became a Christian. And the point is made in the victory of Christianity that the church was going to take over the Roman Empire anyway, even if Constantine had never become a Christian. And it was going to take over the Roman Empire because it proclaimed an exclusive gospel that there was one way to the Father and that way is the person of Jesus Christ and it's through belief in His name and His name only. And along with that, that church, out of its poverty, out of its need, out of its scarcity, served the hurting people in the world around it. And they came to believe like the Christians believed. And the church was growing exponentially on the strength of that confession. And it would have taken over the empire. So we go from a tiny group of people huddled in the upper room, afraid to go out, afraid for their lives. They get this confession that Jesus is the Lord of the universe and God Himself. And they go out into the world and change the world. The church that lacks that truth that compromises one bit on the claim that Jesus is the Lord and, and whose death conquered sin and death and through whom alone we come to God because He is God, the church that lacks that lacks everything no matter what sorts of possessions they have. They find it difficult to believe what Thomas confessed. But the church that has that even if it has nothing else, even if it has no property, even if it has no resources, the church that has that and operates out of that will overcome the world. We've seen it. There's one last beatitude in Jesus' life. On the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about what is it like to be blessed. There's one more beatitude that Jesus gives to his disciples before he ascends back to the Father. 
He turns to Thomas and he says, you, Thomas, believe because you have seen me. And here comes Jesus' final beatitude. Blessed, he said, are those who have not seen and yet believe. Here's what I hope for you this morning as we gather together in this place. You see, that word was recorded by John for you. That word was recorded by John so that everyone who followed, who didn't have the opportunity that Thomas had to to put his finger in the wounds in Jesus' hand, but had come to believe anyway, John wants you this morning to know that the Lord of the universe looks at you and says, blessed are you this morning, in this place, because even though you have not seen, Yet, you have believed. And what is it that you have believed? It's what Thomas confessed. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is my Lord and my God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.